of you may have figured out we're not home yet. We're only halfway there. Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. Mothers interrupt the course of our journey. He's programmed to do that should certain conditions arise. They have. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. Seems she has intercepted a transmission of unknown origin. She got us up to check it out. A transmission? Out here? Yeah. What kind of a transmission? Acoustical beacon that uh, repeats at intervals of 12 seconds. SOS. I don't know. Human. Unknown. Today, as part of our Alien franchise series, we'll be discussing the original Alien. Starring Sigourney Weaver. Ash, that transmission. Mother's deciphered part of it. It doesn't look like an SOS. Well, what is it? Well, I, it looks like a warning. Tom Skerritt. Alien life form. It's been dead a long time. Fossilized. Looks like it's grown out of the chair. John Hurt. Wait a minute, this movement. Yafit Koto. This son of a bitch is huge. I mean, it's like a man. It, it's big. Vanessa Cartwright. I say that we abandoned the ship. We get the shuttle and just get the hell out of here. Harry Dean Stanton. Right. And Ian Home. Still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you? Perfect organism. It's structural. Perfection is matched only by hostility. Directed by Ridley Scott. I can't lie to you about your chances. But you have my sympathies. Hello and welcome back to the Rewind Movie Podcast. Bring back life form, priority one. All other priorities rescinded. It's Galley in Glasgow. Micro changes in air density, my ass. It's Devon in London. Hey, the, the food's not that bad, man. It's Patrick in London. A cave. A cave of some sort. I, I don't know, but it's like the goddamn tropics in here. It's Matt in South Korea. Welcome back, everyone. And, uh, and before we start, uh, welcome back, Patrick. Uh, after a long leave of absence in sick bay, um, it's good to see you, man. Genuinely, God, after a, a bout of COVID, which you've won. Yeah, Ash broke me through quarantine too early. Um, sorry about that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, firstly, foremost, um, especially my parents, uh, they work for the NHS and I just quick moment to say god bless them thank you for their hard work i had excellent treatment and was very impressed by their response to me because i was just getting myself checked out and um i think they're doing amazing work at the minute and yeah it's been it's not been great um but i'm very glad to be back with you lads chatting about alien no no uh it's good to have you back patrick we missed you on species and and Knowing that you've never seen the film now. I miss the boobs, man. I miss the yeah. boobs. Yeah, well, don't worry. Giga's back. You'll get some <laughs> sexual beasts in this one. Um, yeah, so before we before we start, I just want to acknowledge the fact that this is, uh, and I think we all agree, um, a bit of a bona fide sci-fi classic. So we uh, today, listeners, we're going to go back where it all began. So we're going to, re- uh, as we review every film in the Alien series, including those ones that we don't count which is Alien versus Predator films, which we'll eventually get to in probably 2023. Um, but yeah, we, we joined the crew of the Nostromo and we're discussing Ridley Scott's 1979 classic Alien. Uh, and what we're going to do is we're, we're going we're gonna to concentrate on our experiences with the film, noting that this has had extensive puff pieces written 
exploring feminism, <laughs> Freudianism, <laughs> biomechanics. Somebody's fucking academic life work. What is going on? <laughs> Have you got these notes written in front of you? Are you... <laughs> I may be reading from a little script that I wrote. Yes, uh, Miles we, Davis. Yeah, um, but you know, exploring body horror, classism, corporate mistrust. The alien mythology is long, and it all starts with this film. Uh, and I just wanted to acknowledge the fact that it may seem a little bit futile getting us four to discuss a film that has been poured over uh, over the last what four or five decades of just pure cinematic theory. Has been uh, has been thrown at this film, so we're going to come at it from our perspectives and our experiences, and maybe we'll bring in some of those nuggets of uh, of wonderful trivia and and insights from the filmmakers. But we're going to try and avoid just going over the, the old ground. That that was basically all I wanted to say. No, that's fair, um, um, especially yeah. because uh, I haven't read any of them because I'm a very lazy researcher. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well, I know that Matt. You are the, you know, you are, are Mr. Diligent. Um, so I know that you'll bring, bring some insights to the party. Yeah. I'm a, uh, I'm dwelling in the basement on this one. No, good, good, good. And I, I have a pub quiz like fact ready, but, uh, that's, I, I, I agree, Gally. I'm glad we're talking about it from a personal level rather than an analytical, over analytical level. I didn't, I didn't mean to demigrate it by saying a puff piece. I was literally just referencing almost famous. <laughs> I can't wait till all those juiced up nerds come and track you down <laughs> start with you devlin um experiences with with alien uh of the four of us i probably uh, as with uh probably the entire alien series i don't think i've seen this as often as the rest of you have um i've seen it a few times but um i was far more familiar with aliens uh and also far more familiar with aliens only because we would watch it on vhs tape in 20 to 30 minute bursts in our kitchen back in the uh, back in Leeds and a few times on TV when I was a kid. And so when it comes to alien, because it's the, um, as you said, more kind of, uh, uh, cerebral sci-fi classic, it was, it was far less, um, prevalent on UK television when we were kids because it's slower and probably suffers far more for having ad breaks shoved in it. So uh, mm. I'd maybe, by the time I watched it for the podcast, I'd maybe only seen it twice, three times. So uh, yeah, my my perspective is that of a kind of uh, a, a child wandering into a movie halfway through and wondering what you're all talking about. Well, um, I couldn't pinpoint exactly when I first saw it. It's always been around like the Beatles or EastEnders or something like that. <laughs> um, my mates Rob and Phil at Richmond School were the two that, made me take it seriously because they quoted it all the time. They quoted it every day. Um, and I wasn't fluent in the first film. I knew more of the aliens screenplay, but, um, I think I knew that off by heart, but, um, when it came to alien, I, I struggled. So I couldn't really join in with some of their jokes and quotes. So I, they, they used to scream, get out of the road, which isn't even a quote from the film. It's get out of the room. But they used to say that uh, in English class, they used to say, uh, mother, you bitch, almost every day just to make each other laugh. So um, I, yeah, I, I got into it to kind of join in with some of their their gags, really. I, I went to see the 2003 director's cut um, in Leeds with a friend of the show, Joe Mack, who guested on our uh, Lebowski pod and his girlfriend at the time, Laura 
who I remember being really intelligent and she was studying or reading James Joyce at the time and she appeared to understand it. So that was impressive. <laughs> um, and to quote Jeff Bridges in Lebowski, uh, I think we may have burned one on the way over. Uh, I remember, uh, or just outside the light in Leeds. So it was an extra mind blowing experience to see Alien. Um, I remember the landing sequence uh, under the influence of, uh, you know, whatever we were under was particularly special. Um, I'd never seen all of the Dallas stuff, uh, the pinned to the wall, kill me, egg morphing stuff, all of that. I'd, I'd maybe seen on the DVD, but seeing it in context was uh, quite disturbing. Uh, I also remember uh, watching it when I was storyboarding a film in 2010 because I was so impressed by Ridley Scott's approach to uh, forward planning. And I remember him saying that he doubled his budget because he, he uh, storyboarded the entire film and showed it to the investors. So I was inspired by that. So, yeah, it's been with me all this time over the years. So, uh, um, yeah, I'll pass it over. Um, Patrick, how about you? Hmm. Uh proper event film for me this one when i was younger um it was something that was dangled in front of me that that ubiquitous carrots for for years by my parents until i was allowed to watch it or the right age um i like aliens mum and dad loved this film and we like would quote it and <clears throat> talk about how much uh they they liked it and my dad being like sort of the cinema and completely wowed by it. But the main memory I have about getting my interest and knowledge about <laughs> Alien um, was frequent trips after like school or work with my mum to the local supermarket in Leicester. Um, I think things, I feel like things back then were closed earlier, like 5pm or something, uh, because it was constantly always on the tannoy over saying like, um, Please proceed to check out. You know, the shop's closing in five minutes. And mum would be like, right, that's it. The ship's going to explode. The nuclear, the nuclear <laughs> head is armed. Like we got to get out of here. And we were rushing through with the trolley and she'd give me missions to go and get this, get this quickly before the fucking place blew up. And I got really into that for like a year or something. You know, I, I remember that being a fond memory of almost getting excited to hear that thing on the Tannoy in a supermarket so we could have that fun and do those missions. And that came from Alien, she told me, and my dad did, but it was like, you're too young. I'd have been about eight or nine at this uh, fun part in my my life. Um, and I think, because uh, I did a lot of thinking about how uh, this film came to be for me. And I remember going to the cinema and seeing a trailer for Alien Resurrection, which came out in 97, uh, I don't remember what I went to see. Me and my friend Joe Holford, I remember watching the trailer. We went to see something and made a joke like alien erection. Aha. Uh-huh. Very good. Um, and I think then like my interest got really peaked with it and with mum and dad quoting alien and aliens, which obviously important films. Then. I think I pushed then to watch it. So I'd have been about 11, 12, maybe 13 when resurrection came out and to watch that. And we watched like all four, uh, in a very similar time in, in that period. But I mean, the fire was definitely lit and the interest was certainly there with Alien. And I kept revisiting it ever since I got the quadrilogy, um, box set. I think as soon as I could because I wanted to watch all the extras. Gally, sorry, we've gone on quite a bit there. Um, what's your history with the film? Oh, this one's really simple. Um, obviously we, we discussed aliens and, um, 
from that moment as a eight-year-old or nine-year-old that old Papa Papa Galley with his lack of awareness of <laughs> certification, smashing um, plates, smashing plates, and uh, letting his young son watch films that are <laughs> far beyond him. Um, he, uh, yeah, pretty much. I think you said, um, and it's a really good good saying. It did set a set a fire, set a light for me, and uh, I immediately then was. Uh, it's strange because I, you know, we talked about it when we watched Aliens, but I, I've watched all of them out of order. Although really, this is the only one. So I'd watched Aliens and then was like, "Well, I want to see the first one." I didn't even realize there was a first one. Um, and then when I watched it, I was probably too young and didn't appreciate how different it was. Uh, and then it really was until pretty much going getting ready for film school that you you then see the how very very different. Ridley Scott tackles uh, the subject matter and, and also just what a different genre it is. So uh, so that's my history with it. I very much went straight for it as soon as I'd seen Aliens. And um, yeah, video rental, then bought the quad- quadrilogy on VHS, then decided to fork out again for the DVD. Um, so yeah. <laughs> they do one... make you fork out a lot, don't they? Every time it's re-released, you've got to kind of triple yeah. dip it. <laughs> Just in case anyone hasn't seen Alien and like first impressions and stuff, I, from a very young, like similar age and I don't know, the birth of YouTube or whenever I was able to watch it and find it. If anyone's seen the original trailer to Alien, yeah. um, I, I hold it in like the highest regard as like the best cinematic trailer I've ever seen. I agree. And, uh, I think it's just, unbelievable uh the sound there's that sound effect in it matt that it's a drone it's my favorite trailer goes ever. straight through me yeah it, it's impeccable it's purely visual um there's no dialogue in it right and, and it's just the cracking of the the egg and then the droning of the soundtrack and then it's all just visuals and you have to kind of figure out what the film might be like audiences are using their imaginations back then to see i have to see what this thing is but now you can yeah. it's kind of spelled out for us isn't it you could argue that the entire marketing around alien is just so spot on uh, is this is the one with the tagline isn't it in space no one can hear you scream yeah that, yep yeah so that that's your that's your that's your in the poster is yeah completely <laughs> alien you've no idea what it is it's uh the, po- the poster is one of my favorite ever posters as well yeah. i just this this image is so striking mm-hmm. it's so ominous that i think the the the, the setting for, for the film is the tone is there tra- trailer and poster perfect let's get straight into aliens so patrick have you got a plot summary for us space commercial towing vehicle the nostromo crew seven Cargo. Refinery processing 20 million tons of mineral ore. Course. Returning to Earth. En route, the crew awoken from a hi- from hypersleep by Mother, the onboard AI, to investigate a mysterious distress signal. In the carcass of an ancient craft on a stormy planet, LV-426, they discover a strange cargo of ominous-looking eggs. Kane observes it as a silo-like fleshy flaps opens up and a spider-like organism flies out in a flash and attaches himself to his face, inducing coma. Captain Dallas and Science Officer Ash break quarantine to get Kane to Medbay, much to the frustration of Ripley. They should have listened to her, as our spider-like creature can not only bleed acid, 
but has impregnated Cain with his animal, which bursts out of his chest unforgettably and unleashing hell upon the Nostromo. But hell is hidden in plain sight too, as one of the crew is not what it seems. The crew now face a cat and mouse suspenseful survival mission as the perfect organism's animal hunts them down one by one with its hostility. Ripley is our hero at the end of the day and fucks that mother up. Remember, in space, no one can hear you scream. Thank you. That was uh, read out by Tom Hardy. <laughs> Very nice. Sleep tight, children. My favourite. <laughs> I thought a story time kind of uh, yeah. way of approaching it. I don't want to give everything away. No, you like the trailer. You did a good job. Yeah, you did a good job. And and actually, um, it's one of the things that I admire about the the film. And let's just get straight into it. Uh, its structural perfection is only matched by its <laughs> hostility. I think it was kind of born out of Dan O'Bannon. Um, there's some references in the documentary memory that I've been ranting on about in the chat. Um, that really tell you where it all came from. There's a Seeds of Jupiter comic book uh, where a sailor eats a seed and an octopus is born from his body. That's one of the early influences. Uh, there's references to Lovecraft and At the Mountains of Madness in particular, which I think Guillermo del Toro is still trying to make. Um, I'd love to see that. And uh, But they, they've kind of transposed it from the Antarctic to outer space, which is obviously making it different. Um, fear of the unknown, fear of places that are remote. Uh, there's a, the, the terror from beyond space, 10 characters in space. There's an alien killer and uh, he picks off the crew one by one. Is hiding in air ducts, killed by an airlock. Then there's the thing from another world, planet of the vampires, queen of blood. That has really a distress like signal. Of, um, planet of the vampires. Did you ever get to see that one? I haven't seen it, but the clip was very good. There's a sandstorm. It's fantastic, a, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, no, I think maybe that's Queen of Blood. There's a sandstorm. There's a dead alien in a chair, which is a, a clear steal. Yes. And uh, a tray of eggs as well as another thing. And then that kind of leads into Dark Star, because I think Dark Star was really the first incarnation of some of those ideas. Well, Matt, in the, I haven't seen uh, this this documentary that you've been telling me about yeah. in memory. Is, is this the one where Dan O'Bannon, um, and I quote, I don't. I didn't steal from anybody. I stole from everybody, which uh, I love. Yeah, there's three documentaries that I'd like to recommend. Uh, Memory is my favorite. Uh, there's one called The Beast Within, which is the big one that's on most of the DVD releases, I think. And then there's another slightly older one that was maybe on a VHS, perhaps the first release of the Alien trilogy on VHS, and that's on YouTube. I've put them all in the show notes if anyone wants to check them out not mm. not memory you're gonna to have to rent that one or find it but uh I, that's a very famous quote from him and i think it appears in in most of those documentaries yeah because i believe there was um there was a, a lawsuit filed wasn't there with regards to how the alien creature gets on board the gestation uh a crew member being impregnated and then brought on and it's that octopus stuff which obviously yeah um might not have endured as much as as the way that it's uh, depicted in this film, but it just goes to show, and we've talked about it before, haven't we, when we've uh, discussed sci-fi. And in fact, we discussed it in Aliens as well. Yeah. Um, James Cameron kind of pulling from uh, different things. And Terminator, James Cameron pulling from old B, B-movie schlock 40s, 50s stuff. Um, it, it's, it's obviously... It's just a thing. It happens. You can't mm. necessarily um, say that you are the first, 
But I do think that there's a cutoff with Alien now where, you know, no one goes before it. They can say Lovecraftian stuff and that's just like a saying. Mm. But everything since Alien is, oh, that's influenced by well, Alien. The cool thing about Alien is that it's influenced by nature. Ridley Scott always says uh, you can't beat Mother Nature. So whenever he's designing something or approving something, he, he takes a look at that. Um, but there's an interesting thing with Ronald Chassette as well, because he was actually the guy who came up with the idea to have the alien uh, burst out um, to, to, to no, actually, no, I got that wrong. The alien was always supposed to burst out, but they didn't know how to get the alien inside. And he was like, it fucks uh, him. It fucks him. That was his <laughs> idea. He, he woke up in the middle of the night and said that. And Dan O'Bannon was like, you're crazy. And it, they, they worked backwards from that idea of, uh, again, we can get into the, to the, the rape um, themes and uh, the male rape mm. themes in the film. But uh, that's what it was born out of. It was just a way of getting it inside the person so that it could it could leap out. So a lot of it came from O'Bannon, and then Shusek came up with that key uh, that key scene, really that key idea mm. that that really made people read on. A lot of these documentaries are about how the script grasped the people that were reading it, and the, that certain scene where the chestburster happens is one of the key reasons it actually got got made at all. So we, with all the influence and like back stuff you said about Matt, especially Dark Star, which um, if you haven't seen it, seek it out. It's a really impressive student film, should we say. How, how come like this film, Alien, is deemed so original and kind of groundbreaking at the time? You know, we had Star Wars in 77, which is, what do they call it, a space opera. And then you get something dark and dingy and truckers in space with Alien, like, in a similar time? Well, I think a lot, a lot of key things came together, didn't they? It was like, uh, you have to talk about Giga, you have to talk about Ridley Scott. Um, but then there's this used future idea. You, it's kind of in Star Wars, isn't it? If you watch Star Wars now, there's a lot of stuff with the trash compactor and all of that. It's There is a used future there, but it's not to the degree that they did it in Alien. Um, so I, I don't know. Again, it, it, it's thought of as being original, but what, what is original really? If you break everything down, I will, I will, I will go in straight away for Ridley Scott. Um, it's one of the things that I've always loved about the alien series, uh, the early ones, certainly, uh, but also Ridley Scott early in his career, he is a, and to take a Wayland Utani approach, he is building better worlds. Uh, so when I, when I watch <laughs> this film now, when I watch this film now, I honestly, one of the things that I love is that there is, there is a world, a believable world that he presents and you, you don't need to go into loads of expository dialogue about how these people are doing what they're doing, et cetera, et cetera. It's all just inferred and it allows you to then have the imagination to, to think, well, yeah, I can, I can believe this futuristic space world because tangentially everything's up there on the screen, isn't it? You said space truckers in space. <laughs> you get that sense, don't you? Like the, the captain is weird. They're all weary. They're all exasperated because it's just a job. There's no glamour. There's no, there's no detachment yeah. from like astronauts in space. This mm. is a bunch of people doing a job. They're there, and and one of the things I love about it is they ground it so much. So when when Parker keeps talking about, let's just talk about the bonus situation. <laughs> I totally relate to that because I would also be thinking I've been away for fucking two years. I would like to get paid a bit more money if I have to stay out for a bit longer. Yeah. So all of that 
feeds into the idea that this is quite believable despite it being extraordinary. I think the script is like particularly good, isn't it, Gally? Like that that dialogue and that talk, that chat there. People always talk about Tarantino having the the talk about there's nothing that really drives a plot or anything, but that's just real life characters there. Uh, yeah, I, I, they're, I love those early interchanges and trying to figure out what, why they've been woken up and from a work point of view. I like all the, also to go into that, but then more plot driven is when they call, say the company and they're pissed off and they haven't read the small print about having to explore, uh, signs of potential intelligent life that's um when you're talking about the the grounding that happens in the early sequences with the um around the the, the sort of breakfast table and any sequence where you have the whole crew kind of together sort of jostling and chatting um one thing that struck me this time was that um so like i said i wasn't as familiar with the film at all and um uh what i loved as much as the the the, the dialogue uh, uh, as written must have been quite loose or they must have maybe given them opportunity to kind of maybe improv around their, their lines. It was also, it was the, um, the sound mix I thought was incredible. It was, um, it really reminded me of something like a Robert Altman film where you, you're allowing lines of dialogue to just drift off. And, um, it happens throughout the film whenever you have a group of people talking, even in some of the more kind of tense scenes, like later on where, um, uh, Yafik Koto and uh, uh, Sigourney Weaver are arguing about what's uh, what's going to happen next and how they're going to track this thing down when everything's... Uh, a lot of Yafik Koto's lines are happening almost off screen or off mic even. Yeah, um, you have to kind of choose who you're listening like, to, like an Altman film. You have yeah. to kind of... And when you watch it multiple times, you can kind of zero in on different different things. It's, it, it layers it in a really interesting way. For a film of that era, is is pretty extraordinary. To, to be able to track things up like that. And then to, to add to that, this kind of ambient sounds, you've got the ship kind of basically breathing most of the time, which is, you know, creaking and, and, and yeah, it's, uh, as much as the set design is, is gorgeous, to be honest. Like it's, it's extraordinary, but, uh, that's, I think that's what really gives it like a life of its own. No, I totally, I totally agree. The dynamics between all of the characters and they, they've also managed to weave in this class system which you you understand the pecking order on board, don't you, um, without them having to spell it out. You know, of course, we have a captain, so it makes sense that he sits top of the tree, and that's Dallas. But then there's this weird, like, who's no one tells us where Ripley sits within this dynamic, because if you're looking at this from the first time you've ever seen it, she's a peripheral character for 45 minutes, sort of someone in the background who we you know everyone gets a bit of equal footing uh, does that make sense like ash is uh, everyone's got screen time you know what i mean there's no, it almost feels like maybe you should be focused on dallas the captain well that's one of the coolest things about it because when it does come down to it and she's the final girl there's no real clues that it's going to happen so in a suspenseful way um you know i think that's really effective that they're all kind of yeah. on a level playing field and to, just to kind of go politically as well you know, the, the three survivors at the end are two females and a black male and yeah. maybe completely against uh stereotype and trope films that survival films in that era as well 
Mm. Well, we should really, um, you know, dedicate a bit of a section and we'll be all over the place on this film. So there'll be no chronological uh, order as going through scenes. Uh, Yafik Koto, um, the actor, passed away yeah. recently. Like, just think about it. So we have a, a, a black character in space. But what I love is he's got a staff. He's got Brett, hasn't he? So he is actually, uh, you know, he is uh, a character who's not just the token character that was going to die. Uh, he has real agency. And what I love about his character as well is that he imparts his personality on the rest of the crew. There is one bit of Yafet Koto acting that I just love every time I watch it. And it's when he comes in when the, when Captain Dallas, uh, calls them in and Ash is sat in his seat and he just says, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> you're in my seat and then when 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 ash gets up and this is a uh so this is in the class system he's he's an engineer he's in the lower decks ash is the science officer an officer but he's like get out of my seat basically yeah. and then he wipes it with like such disdain, <laughs> like, just pats it down before he sits down and those are like little acting choices well he challenges dallas as well when they bring kane into the med bay it's like why are you throw why are you freezing him yeah. And you, you know, and he's supporting Ripley and saying, she's got a point, man. You know, like having his say, he's very imposing. Uh, yeah, he's great. My favorite stuff he does is between him and, um, Brett. I think they have a really good chemistry. Like, uh, I love that kind of tragic moment where Brett lets Jonesy loose and, uh, Parker and Ripley kind of share a reaction like, oh my God, he's a total two digit IQ, this guy. And, but, but Parker's friendship. <laughs> with him and his tolerance of him still shines through and that's one of my yeah. favorite scenes that he's his dumb buddy and that's okay all right now Easy. wait don't let him go what the hell are you doing man it's a cat <sighs> <laughs> Hey, look now, we've had to bag it, man. Now we might pick it up on the track again. I'll, I'll, I'll go, get go it. and get it. All right, you get him, we'll go on. I always find Parker, especially the way he's dressed as well with a headband and stuff, quite an iconic image uh, of like a worker in space and that, that kind of person. Even like the ripped seizure at the end, like I think he just looks fucking cool in this film. Before we get fully into the ensemble, I did this in Species, uh, and I, I pretty much mentioned how they ripped it off. But can we talk about the opening credits to this film? Oh, yeah. Because we've we've talked about the trailer, that is iconic, and has stood the test of time. The marketing, this is on par with the Hitchcock Soul Bass collaboration because the way that the Alien title is revealed it's it's perfectly thematically linked to what we're going to get isn't it including the pacing because it's done very slowly revealing itself to be something else as it mm -hmm. morphs into the word it's well there's something cool going on with uh hieroglyphics there because the the derelict as they call it the spacecraft that they ultimately find the eggs on was originally designed to be a pyramid and there was this theme of uh egypt and hieroglyphics that's why the the kind of lines uh, appear in that way at the beginning. It's almost like a computer readout meets a hieroglyphic and that's become totally iconic and it's got this dangerous mystique to it. Um, I, I love the opening title. I, it's also, it's a, it's a very good um, tone setter, Matt, isn't it? Because it, it's a slow tracking shot across space. 
Mm. So we, we're setting the, the scene, the, the, the location. We're setting the tone and the atmosphere. I think there's an ominous kind of noise and music over it. Yeah. There's a, there's a hum, isn't there? That's yeah. going underneath the way you, um, worded your, uh, synopsis there. You read some of the, uh, the on-screen information that we see at the beginning yeah. of the film that Scott kind of repeated in Prometheus and Covenant too, I think. But yeah. the, the way that text is worded and presented to us at the beginning is, has become another yeah. iconic thing. So we've got an iconic poster, trailer, tagline, opening title sequence, and eventually, you know, we'll get onto the creature and things like that. But, yeah. you know, this thing is just knocking it out of the park, isn't it? The credits, when you're using the, the, the hieroglyphics are playing out and you've got that slow kind of drift through space, I'm going to assume that what they're drifting across is, um, is paintings. Um, either, either airbrush art or, uh, or, or, or acrylic or, or oil paintings. Cause, um, the one thing that I did pick up from watching the, um, uh, the, the documentary, the beast within was the, uh, the extraordinary amount of visual work that went in ahead of time before they ever even got to the point where um, it's, it's in the Dan O'Bannon was already a, assembling a crew of artists, the, the the most influential artists before even Ridley Scott came on board. And it was kind of, we spoke in, in Species about how it was a shame that they sidelined this kind of uh, extraordinary artist in, in Giga, but uh, on Alien, you what? had not just Giga, but... Uh, was it Chris Foss? I believe that sounds was right. It was all tied to the uh, the Jorodowski Dune, right? Yeah, that fell through. Jodorowsky Did you see Dune, anything? Yes. Yeah, so you yeah. Had, uh, you had Chris Foss and H.R. Giger, and then he also picked up a um uh, a, a political cartoonist, uh, uh, Ron Cobb, who ended up designing a lot of the uh, the more practical kind of stuff. And I I found yeah. all that stuff so fascinating, but um. One thing that they all said, including um, Ridley Scott, was that they were all obsessed with Mobius comics and mm. Metal Hurant, which later became like the the kind of hilariously shitty heavy metal comics of the eighties. But the the original, you can French see some of that in his drawings, his sketches, and um, uh, storyboards. You can see it. In yeah. Well, didn't didn't Ridley Scott like see a painting that Giga did of essentially the Xenomorph? in 76 or something right yeah. so like i love that design that you need to bring that to the film and the production designers in pinewood you know they were creating the sets fully aware that giga was going to come in and uh as they said like stop nailing in his his influence but there's a perfect marriage there of yeah the cold dark uh the cold like uh sedate kind of cynical ship that's white and you know apple uh, and then the, the warm underbelly with the cooling system, which I quite like the contrast of light and dark there. And then Giga's just little bits, A eh, on the Nostromo, but everything you need to know about the production design and obviously Ridley Scott, you can just imagine him walking on set like, wow, they wrote fucking, this is what I wanted. But that tracking shot with the pilot in the derelict, that's you know it's a close-up that comes out to reveal the whole thing and it's this fucking huge set is for me we spoke iconic matthew i think the whole film is riddled with it because mm. that is an everlasting image for me the the, the mystery well, isn't it odd it? that that made it in it's so incredible that it's not like tied to any key part of the story that we find out about but the film but, is full of mystery and, yeah. you know, what, what, what could, what's going on? What can be the, the mythology, the, 
the horror of not knowing and discovery and that shot says everything for me of the film the the pace of the tracking shot uh the the crane shot whatever you want to call it mm. the the reveal the mystery the design the look of it uh, frankly there was two it's, cool it's things with that one uh, i think it was ridley scott's son or sons and someone else's son so that they could get the scale right they put their kids mm-hmm. in the in the space suits to just give it a bit more of a grand scale. Wow. And the other thing yeah. was uh, Giga was pissed off because he hadn't finished painting it. And they said, oh. uh, don't worry. We'll, the way we'll light it, it'll be fine. But uh, he was, mm-hmm. he wasn't satisfied with it. The fact that that was going on film was really bothersome to him. I think. Well, see what I love about that is just when we're saying that it's, uh, it's stuff that's come from, from other things, but has crystallized to form something which is almost like a, like a year zero for a certain type of sci-fi. I just love that. Um, they found these, these artists and these art influences, which were clearly already extant and they were probably underground successful. Ridley Scott being a visual artist would have been familiar with Giga. And like you said, he'd seen uh, an exhibition of his paintings. What I love is that they, somebody had the foresight to bring all these threads together and to think that these, um, very abstract, very terrifying kind of, uh, uh, um, strange, scapes and images which probably don't seem like they have a, an immediate narrative function to be able to think well that would work as a production design in a film is is in retrospect kind of it seems like so obvious but at the time it must have been an extraordinary leap to to show somebody those those paintings and say yeah this is what it's going to look like especially because he's so phallic in his work and suggestive and and metaphysical it's it's extraordinary to allow that kind of freedom and trust that it's going to say exactly what you need it to say on screen and give the right ominous tone, really. I like that all of the, um, sorry, Gally, all, all of the, the Giga stuff kind of is, is the alien stuff. So all of the, mm. the alien planet, the alien craft, or, or whatever the alien planet would be, the craft, the alien itself all comes from one guy. And that's, uh, it all feels like it has a thread through through all of it. Well, one of the things uh, um, you mentioned, Ron Cobb, and I'm a bit of a sci-fi nerd, and Giga stuff is fantastic. Uh, it's it's weird, cerebral, nightmare fueled. Uh, also, the sexual overtones are, are outrageous. But uh, this is where we'll talk about Ridley Scott because I think this is where him his helming of the film, Mr. Is Millman, so the calls come in. Wrigley Scott. Wrigley Scott. Wrigley, Wrigley But, um, one of the, uh, one of the things that I love about the, the Ron Cobb sci-fi element stuff is how it, how it functions. So if you think about sci-fi and, and Star Wars is guilty of this, a red button will be pressed and something will then happen. <laughs> And one of the things that Alien does, and it it feeds into the pacing, but forget about just the way that the, it's a real hardship to land uh, a, a vessel onto a planet, because that's kind of like, yeah, okay, that's fine. My big signpost for why the Ron Cobb stuff works is it makes complete logical sense that if you're going to destroy a ship that size, that you can't just press one button. And they show that, don't they? So when Ripley, right at the end, has to uh, do the self-destruct mechanism, it's it all makes sense, right? You'd have to, you can't do it accidentally. You'd have to lift these 
uh, huge um, pillars. Then you mm. have to. Then there's a guard on the button. Then you have to press all those buttons in a sequence. Then you have to open up the vents. Mm-hmm. So all of that stuff being shown is not just filler to try and kill time like we would have in some B movie 80s slock trying to get the runtime to 90 minutes. I like the co- time with of... the cooling system in that as well. It's yeah, very it's, intricate. it's all. It is. It's and it's all part of building better worlds. You mm-hmm. believe it because it makes complete sense. Whereas in in in, in lazy sci-fi, one booster button will mean that you can go from one point uh, in space to another. I'm not knocking Star Wars. I'm just saying that's how Alien differentiates it, mm. and that's how Ridley Scott manages to pull all these design elements to create something that, you, for me as an audience member. Having just watched Species, the Giga stuff in that is stupid and kind of laughable. <laughs> the Giga stuff in this and the sci-fi elements are so believable that I think that's why there's fandom that now believes that this will be our future in about mm-hmm. 50 years' time. Which is great as well, because one of the things I always look at, and it, it'd be very easy to dismiss the computer, like MS-DOS-style um typing on screen in the computers because obviously they were over time but they're so practical and i really like the green writing and the way it writes and the sound effect like the Mm. i I don't know how to explain it the type like a sped up typewriter yeah that noise mate is great and the scanning and the kind of auto you understand the autopilot at the beginning and i like the you know, yeah. the, from a design and a visual thing from Ridley, Mr. Wrigley Scott, excuse me, the, the projections <laughs> on the face of the pilots and their understanding of what they're reading, yeah. the, it, it all, like the science fiction point of view, it all makes sense of how a ship works. We've talked about Parker. Um, so let's, let's talk about our, our ensemble and we've talked about the sci-fi elements. The other, the other part of, uh, the film is the horror element. And one of the things I love about this film is that, just like any good horror film, the characters, they, they reveal themselves as they get picked off. So we start with a crew of seven and as they get whittled down, is it seven or is it six? Oh no, I may have got my numbers. No, they incorrect. use a very politically incorrect term on a lot of the making of seven little Indians, which is what ah, Rid- Ridley Scott go. keeps saying. Uh, so <laughs> okay. there's seven, seven people. <laughs> you, you, you're daft racist. <laughs> <laughs> but no, um, yeah, you start with the seven and then as they get picked off more and more, um, other characters get revealed. So they start as, I have to say archetypes, but I do like the way that, again, they uh, exposit dialogue about each other's characters and it's done through actions. But every now and again, you get a little sense, don't you? So when Dallas, when they get the mission and they know that they're going to go, and I think Ash says, uh, you know, you could walk. John Hurt's character says, well, I'll be the first. And I think Dallas, it's just a little line just says, well, that figures. So you immediately know he is the, he's the seeker. He's the explorer. He's the one who wants to, you know, he is representing man stepping into the natural world. The other thing that I love about the script is at every single turn, if they just made another decision, namely the right one, they wouldn't all die. Uh, so it starts, it starts straight away with they have the signal. I know that they're contractually obliged to go and investigate, but they don't actually need to, once they get there and they know that the beacon is, I think Ripley deciphers it doesn't she she's like well mother deciphers it and and then ripley says i think this is a warning this is a warning and then not uh not a distress signal 
that's where they were wanting signs then are with Ash as well, because mm. he, mm-hmm. his reaction is like, no, 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 just, you know, they'll find out if it's a warning, give them time. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. but, but they all, they keep making it, you know, we talked about Parker. Why don't you just freeze him? Well, if they froze him, mm-hmm. then they would, it wouldn't. And I think John Hurt, when he wakes up, he's like, uh, next silly question. Well, we're going to go back to the big freezerinos. <laughs> I've got to get a meal first. Ah, oh, if he just <laughs> had had a meal, if he hadn't gone and eaten, then he wouldn't have uh, had a chest burster out of it. And it keeps happening. You know, Brett with the, with letting Jonesy go and yeah, then yeah. Sigourney, you go and get him. No, stay together, you idiots. Uh, mm. yeah, there's, there's loads of that. Books, like just, yeah, yeah why exactly. would you go and into somewhere so claustrophobic and, and no escape? But in a bad horror film, you go, why are you running up the stairs? You moron. In this film, even though they're making bad decisions constantly, I don't mind it. I, th- I think it's indicative of understanding though, that they're not a crew designed for this mission. You know, they say it's a small print of their contract with Wayland and they are a mining corp. They're not designed for maybe ashes. Uh, yeah, well, we're seeing them struggle through it as but, part of it, isn't it? The, there's, there's a line about Ash yeah, where Ripley yeah. says, did you ever ship out with Ash before? And Dallas says, I went out five times with mm-hmm. another science officer and they replaced him two days before we left. So this idea of not trusting mm. him comes about. So it's all, it's like uh, Burke again in the second yeah. one. It's the company, the company guy who's uh, going to yeah, betray them. Yeah. And then it's all about Ripley's development, really, to, who, who completely grows. You know, her well, and Lambert are quite interesting. There's the two female characters and in the director's cut, the bit I quite like, which I wish was added into the theatrical was the slap and the attack from Lambert on Ripley. Yeah, me too. But, yeah. but then Rip, Lambert just, she becomes, I mean, so she, the audience is fear. She's, she, she's uh, crippled by it, isn't crippled she? By, thank you. Whereas Ripley grows and grows and grows. And it's interesting how Dallas relates to the two of them. What, what do you think is the, the answer to the, to the three way there? What's, uh, what's going on between <laughs> the three? You filthy man. <laughs> <laughs> do you think there was a relationship between, uh, Ripley and Dallas? I think there's, a, I thought it was, thought it was res- like professional respect. I mean, she had stuff like talking about decisions. We were talking about quarantine when Kane has, and she's like, you've yeah. got to identify what's on the face. And she's like, no, 24 hours quarantine can't come in. And Dallas is arguing. I think the mutual respect though, because later on when Ash says, uh, you've got to come see Kane. It's interesting. He says, Ripley, meet me in Medbay. He immediately goes to her. And I see that as a professional thing. There was a deleted scene. Uh, I think it was scripted and Sigourney Weaver did it in her screen test. It's in the uh, playlist that I put together. Um, she's with a different actor because it's a screen test. It's not uh, Tom Skerritt. But there's a scene where she goes to him and uh, they actually make love in the mm. within the movie. So whether anything's going on before, nobody knows. But there was originally a scene where they got together um, as the as the uh, the alien is loose on the ship, which again would probably not fit fit anywhere. That's, that's a proper old horror trope, isn't it? Yeah, it doesn't need it though. This film really doesn't need. I, I don't no, it's it's better scene. left as uh, it's better left as unsaid or some kind of deep seated subtext between reading between the lines with the characters. But that very that very thing that you talked about is the kind of thing that then happens in I think it happens in Alien Resurrection, doesn't it? The captain has sex with his partner whilst yeah. the aliens are just about to get loose. So is it is it our friend s- Sheriff of Not- um, uh, Guy Gisborne in 
Resurrection. Yeah, Guy of Gisbonson. There's another one in Prometheus where Idris Elba and Charlize Theron, it's suggested between the two of them as well. It's a similar thing. Well, I, you see, when I, um, not to, not to give away too many sandwiches for when we get to Prometheus, but when I first saw Prometheus, I, I really did have a problem with Idris Elba's depiction of the captain because I, mm. I thought he was too, didn't care he was too, re, he was too relaxed and too, um, good at his job. <laughs> but, uh, but, 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 but you know what? Actually, rewatching Alien, Dallas yeah. is, is equally as a bad as a captain. Like he's, he, no, he is. So no, he's not designed for that mission. Mm. Idris Elba's character is. Mm. No, but the, I know, no, I get that. But the, the only, I never really connected the two. I always thought that Idris Elba was just being Idris Elba, but actually he was very much taking what the Scarlet had done with Dallas and kind of building on it, which is a character who doesn't even want to be there. He's not like a leader as such. He really isn't. I think, you know, like I say, he makes all these bad decisions. You could argue he's one of the worst captains in cinematic sci-fi history. <laughs> <laughs> Just tell me how you can leave that kind of decision to him. Look, I just run the ship. Anything that has to do with the science division, Ash has the final word. How does that happen? It happens, my dear, because that's what the company wants to happen. Since when is that standard procedure? Standard procedure is to do what the hell they tell you to do. That His demise is like purest horror in this film, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. the proper stalk. And uh, yeah. there's, we've spoken about the sound design a little bit. When... They reveal the alien in the close. <laughs> the reach the four, it reaches out. out. Four, which is terrifying. But there's a really good sound effect there where the audio kind of gets yeah. unplugged and that's. The other reason I think that works well is the Lambert voiceover because Lambert is telling him where the alien is coming from, but he has no geography as to which direction. Yeah. So uh, we're hearing it, but he can't quite understand the geography of the situation. So that's a really suspenseful one. Yeah, I love the, with the, um, the 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 tunnel seals behind him. The the use of the what looks like a cap, giant camera shutter and the the noise that it makes when it just oh yeah. There's it. one other thing on on the monitor too. Uh, the monitor looks like a sperm and an egg. Ah, yeah, the, yeah. Uh, that was apparently intentional. I found that somewhere, but um, yeah, the designers wanted that to look like a you know a, a reproductive kind of you know. What are what are our thoughts then for the other the other players and mainly I mean so we talked about Veronica Cartwright's depiction yeah she thought she was going to be cast as Ripley at the beginning oh, it was okay. a surprise really? for her to become Lambert yeah oh she's perfectly she's perfectly cast for Lambert and you could probably argue that uh, and again we you know I mentioned about the feminism at the beginning yeah, the film has been poured over but she's I think you said it right Patrick she's the the horror trope female character i guess the hysterical female who's screaming crying but you kind of need it because it works well, as a it's, nice it's balance the audience she's the audience isn't she she's the yeah the she was representing what i was thinking she's smoking and she's kind of she's got this female intuition that's quite cool and like she knows that uh why don't we just get out of here you know she's the the voice of reason uh, i wanted to mention yeah. the thing that devlin brought up before i don't know if it was on the previous podcast or not but james cameron made her transgender yes in in the yeah. second canonic uh, film the character of uh of lambert is is trans yeah they put, it's on the bio information on aliens isn't it it yeah. is but there's oh, not wow. there's nothing to suggest it in the in the the original but that was just a, a, a direction cameron took it well yeah that's interesting because now i'm thinking about that parker line with uh well, I'm eating something right now, but I'll, um, <laughs> I don't really know what I'm talking about. I do. I've got it. Matt knows yeah. what I'm talking he about. He references <laughs> an, an oral sex reference, uh, when he's 
talk, talking about the food. But she's she's a really interesting character. I particularly um, like the dynamic the of the three of them together and wondering what what's going on there. But the the most interesting thing with her character, I think, is her death because I didn't really know what happened to her. There's a video online about uh, was she violated in some way, and that there is a, a sexual, a suggestive sexuality to her death. The tail kind of creeps between her legs. And I remember asking you, Gally, like, what did you think happened? Because when, when, when Ripley discovers their bodies in like the slasher film style, uh, you've got the dead Yafet Koto. And then in the foreground, there's an arm or a an leg. An arm or I a leg. Yeah. But the skin yeah. tone is different. So I, I think that's probably Lambert. Um, am I wrong? That scene is really interestingly lit where Lambert's literally in a spotlight. It's very striking. And I felt like there was some sort of undertone about the spotlight of the thematics of rape or intergalactic rape, as they call it in the film. And yeah, the tale is suggestive. And the film, you know, one of the big thematics is is about impregnation um, against will. And mm. that is, I think that spotlight and the the sheer terror and primal fear in her is a spotlight on on the horror, on the terror, on the... Uh, you know the 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 huge monster looming over her that is um terrifying and intrusive and i i think it's all to to do with that and i did read it that way well and the creature it's this isn't like uh jason Voorhees who just will kill you quickly and in inventive ways the creature takes time doesn't it um, apart from when, you know, it, you think about every, the, the, the Parker death, you know, we, we see the teeth. It's all very slow, methodical. And it's the same with Lambert, isn't it? You, you do wonder like what, what is going on there? Because if it was just a case of the creature feels threatened or as, uh, as Ash decides, uh, describes it, it's, uh, you know, it's the ultimate creature for survival, but it seems to be taking some kind of joy or what is he getting from the actor or he or she? I think she's kind of uh, split in half, like a wishbone. And I, I think there's a sexual element to that death. I don't really know if, that, if that's her leg or that's whatever that is, but that's how I took it. And the way I imagine it is like, because you hear her death, don't you? When Ripley is going down the oh, corridor. It's amazing. It's terrifying because you don't see it. You just hear her very strange muffled. There's another thing there that leads into Ash, actually, if you want to talk about Ash, because there's this peculiar moment where he has a giggle. It's, it's during that battle between him, him and Ripley. And I think he pulls her hair out. Inexplicable, really, like, unless you come up with your own stuff to justify it. Like, why does he laugh in that moment when he pulls her hair out? And, uh, there's just some yeah. peculiar, unexplained things that, that make the film, uh, more fascinating than it it otherwise would have been. Mm. Well, yeah, because otherwise it's a straight up creature feature, isn't it? It's a, it's a, it's a monster in a haunted house, uh, literally. And, and all these things that we're talking about, they're, they're layers, they're subtextual, they're, some of it's allegorical and you, you, 
you end up just kind of, you can unpack it, hence why years and years worth of many, many websites of just trawling through the mythology and people writing different narratives about what it, and it's fascinating, right? We can do that and have fun with it. I guess the, the danger is when it becomes uh, sort of Star Wars and everyone gets a bit like, no, Lambert. <laughs> Lambert was ripped apart. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I think I just did that, but yeah, there you go. I, I'm not, yeah, I'm no, not I'm, forcing I, that upon anyone, but that's just my, no, my you, idea. Well, you, you don't sound like the, uh, the, the basement dweller that I've just, you <laughs> bastard, <laughs> ruining my alien. But the, cho- the choice though, to, uh, of Ripley hearing that, hearing that horror and, and like Weaver's performance in a panic and, well, Distress. how much do you think that is born oh, out really? of the, the, the Jaws idea of the, the, how little you show is, is more effective? Cause the, the, the creature, there's one shot I would actually cut, like just before Lambert's death. Listen to me. Oh, I would, I would cut a shot from him. <laughs> but, um, th- there's a shot where the alien is just side on. It's like a profile and it's moving in a really strange <laughs> sort of, it's like it's oh, on yeah. a, a skateboard a or something. Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, uh, yeah. I, I, I would have lost. Lost yeah. that one. If you look at some of the deleted scenes, the way the alien moves over to Lambert, it's kind of doing a crouch and it's shuffling yeah. forward. Um, yeah, they get and, rid of that though because yeah, it's goofy. I, I would have lost even more, like, and just gone with total close-ups. The one bit that I love is the. Uh, I want to talk about in favorite scenes though, so I, I won't mention it yet. But it's the movement of the creature. But um, yeah, that was all I wanted to mention. Oh no, fair enough, fair enough. Well, um, let's talk about um, City and Home again. Another uh, sad loss. Uh, was it last year? I remember when when he passed. Yeah, it one or two years ago. Yeah, yeah. And this this for me, you know, granted, I do love me some Bilbo Baggins, but my God, is he great in this? He's also great in uh, the day after tomorrow as the big Manchester United fan. <laughs> I'm a Manchester fan. I like it when they don't ju- they don't even say if it's City or United. No, no, and he and he's uh, he's like a great scientist who's about to go to his death, and he just gets a nice bit of scotch, and he's like to to England. I think he says to the Queen or something. You're like, oh, and aren't they in Scotland? And is he doing? Yeah, it's a bit of a weird. Anyway, I don't know. That, that's a complete and utter sidebar. I don't know how that managed to get into our alien discussion. But he is one of the great things about his performance is clearly we now know that Ash is an android. Spoilers if anyone's not seen Alien. Where have you been? Um, <laughs> but his performance is phenomenal in this film because yeah. he is the infiltrator, isn't he? But the way when you now know when you rewatch it and you see his performance, it's it's magical, isn't it? The way that yeah. he obse- he's he's constantly observing the interactions that are going on and i love it cuz mm-hmm. you're thinking he is when he's thinking about every opportunity that he can get them to manipulate them to do the thing yeah. that he wants them to do and he yeah. ha- he has a key moment for me as well when kane is convulsing on the table and starts to um, starts the chest burst and stuff there's a shot very i mean the, the, we haven't spoken about the editing and the direction of this film really but i mean this shot is one of those just just before it comes out you mean he knows uh he starts coughing he he, he starts like being sick does kane and it cuts, and it cuts to, to him, ian yeah. home and he he has this reaction that is so loaded you can we can discuss that for another 10 minutes and also because, like as soon as it comes out he, he says don't touch it don't touch right, it yep yeah. he, he's like don't That's touch it. it he he doesn't want to take the the, uh, he wants to see what happens with the face hugger on. He wants to develop it. He, when Ripley comes to speak to him, one of my favorite scenes, not quite my favorite, but their interaction when she comes to chastise him 
and mm. she's very sinister in, in how sweet she is. It's, she's brilliant. Yeah. Um, he switches off everything, stands up, like stretches, like faux tired. And I mean, the fucking performances in this film and yeah, it's so smarmy and just so everything's so loaded about you understand that, uh, something's not right about Ash. You get that. I mean, he breaks quarantine. He, he, but I didn't get that he was a fucking android. I have confirmed that he's got an outer layer of protein polysaccharides. Has a funny habit of shedding his cells and replacing them with polarized silicon, which gives him a prolonged resistance to adverse environmental conditions. Said nothing. That's funny. What does it mean? Please don't do that. Thank you. I'm sorry. Well, it's an interesting combination of elements making him a tough little son of a bitch. And you let him in. I was obeying a direct order, remember? Ash, when Dallas and Kane are off the ship, I'm senior officer. Oh, yes, I forgot. No, like on, on second viewing, you can see all of that stuff you're talking about, like the yeah. little, the little glances. It's all there. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite ones with him is, um, when uh, Ripley's going to radio out to them. I think you mentioned it just a minute ago about it being uh, a warning, not a distress signal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he says, uh, what's the point? Like that yeah. to her. Yeah. And then he and almost that, backtracks, doesn't he? And changes his tone to like, yeah, he catches himself. Good. There's another yeah. moment where he says shit. And I don't believe he would do that. That's, that's another one of my, my nitpicks. I can't Yeah, but if we're going to say it. about Android and Asimov's three laws, I mean, death by porno mag is not something an Android would do, is yeah. it? <laughs> yeah, he is a bit of a, an oddity, isn't he? That scene when, when he does, uh, turn on, on, on Ripley and he is like, again, forcing himself on her. The, the, the subtext in this film is, is not exactly sub. It's pretty much just the text of it, and that well, know, it is when you've got a bunch of porno mags in the background. Yeah, it? exactly. Framing it up with <laughs> uh, it's it's the only nudity really within the the, the film, and it's uh, it's displayed all over the wall while he's kind of looming. That's well, and, le- and and let's not forget. I know that it might just be because it's android blood, but it, did it have to be white milk? Well, no, but it, it's obviously it's all there, isn't it? Like that is him. Mm-hmm ejaculating oh dear i've done it again i've gone crude well there's a whole thing about that 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 this idea that he he's not malfunctioning he he's um in that moment to his natural no no he's he's damaged or or the or the the pro his programming in some way is has been sort of perverted and he there's pornography all around him he uses a rolled up porno mag because he he has nothing that he can penetrate her with i mean he's a machine so presumably he doesn't have genitalia. I mean, I, I don't know if Ridley Scott got into that, but um, one one of the the explanations for that was he's uh, you know he's he's just creating a phallic object, and he's uh, another thing is the oral rape. That's the whole theme throughout this whole thing, and it's it's echoed again there. Yeah, one thing I should mention I forgot to say before is like why does he do that with the magazine? And uh, there's a, a theory that because he's in such admiration of the creature, he's talked as he's uh, dissecting it about the the creature itself uh he's actually mimicking the the, the oral rape it's it's him oh, yeah, to okay. be like the creature and as he's probably a eunuch we 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 assume that that's the only way he can actually penetrate 
I do quite like, um, I mean, I'm not taking anything away from it because it's still quite a, a shocking scene, but you could view it like when he does little robot arms on Parker. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit it's a bit crying isn't it but i i, I the framing's very good um the framing's very good and the 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 effect of the headless almost headless um body yeah. writhing around is the sound when he whizzes around is a bit daft but i'll i'll accept it but it's unnerving and it's 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 alien and weird it's, it, is, it is very 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 weird it's to it reads as weird like it's fucking odd to watch it mm. all plays out so strangely <laughs> it really puts you off kilter the whole thing it really does doesn't it i mean we have been waxing the car of this film for some time but there are a couple of there are a couple of things i'm sure if ridley scott could could change you know with the technology certainly robot arms and yeah. also smiley yeah. the yeah. you know what actually you know forget about the the, the, the yeah movie. yeah absolutely devlin that's it that's the one like it's, You've got footage. It's yeah, it's the one thing I, I can't understand. I mean, Terry Rawlins, who's the editor of this film, is an absolute British institution. I mean, he's done some of the greatest films in cinema have been edited by Terry Rawlins. But I can't work out is why wouldn't you just that hard cut when it's uh, model, model Ash head to uh, Ian Holm popping his head through uh, a table just cut to someone's reaction like I, that just yeah. never ever understood it never one of the it. rules we we were told about is you cut on action so as something right, is yeah. struck or as something is hit you cut on the action of it so again i'm telling terry rawlins how to do his job <laughs> you know like you said go to something else and come back and cut on the action and that head that shrunk because the the effects team did something or other with it like when it was when it was created or and one of the documentaries said that it shrunk to about two thirds of its original size, so it looks mental wow. anyway. But it looks, um, so yeah, try and disguise it a bit. From, um, uh, Adventures of Baron Munchausen, you know when? Uh, <laughs> yeah. When, when, uh, Robin I'd Lewis honestly uh, never noticed that edit point till you mentioned it to us offline really? the other day, and I kind of looked out for it, and I was like, "Wow, okay." Like, I get it. Like as a it's, goo- it's just goofy, isn't it? It's, well, it's 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 mad because like the moment when the face hugger um is died, it's done its duty, and Ripley throws it off, and Ash goes to inspect it. This is exactly what we're talking about, like cut on the edit, which which is good. There's a close up that he prods it, and it spider legs close in, and we cut yeah. to profile to see the the remnants of it and the reactions. And like marvelous bit of editing and exactly what you've just spoken about, Matt. And I'm amazed that I, I get it now, but I never saw that. I it never, it's never problem me before. Mm. Just, I don't know. Now I'm thinking about it from, from our perspective for the podcast. Yeah. That, right. You need to have like an, uh, an actor be in exactly the same position, the head be in exactly the same position between the model and mm-hmm. the live in home, which means that e- you have to even a close up cutaway of when she sparks the stuff inside the head. Yes. Yeah. It's just, it's one of those weird, weird things that I've never really got my head around because, um, you know, I think my sandwiches have been, they've all been eaten. Um, how about fixing in that if you're going to do a director's cut? How about, yeah, well, this know, is, yeah. The, this is it, yeah, because that really is. I, I can forgive the limitations of the technology at the time with Ash's weird Crichton arms. Uh, and, and to be fair, Yafit Koso sells it. It was like, get this fucking thing off of me. Oh, <laughs> when he grabs his chest. I love that moment. That, that's the most unintentionally hilarious moment for me when he grabs Parker's man boob. <laughs> 
<laughs> an extreme <laughs> robot person. Level. Yeah, I think you said as well, Matt, offline that there was a few uh, ADR things that troubled you. Oh, I've got the best one. Hold on, hold on. I've got the best one. It's um, don't worry, Parker. You, yeah, you'll get exactly what's coming to you. <laughs> That's my favorite one. Which view yeah. is that? It's uh, <laughs> it's, when, it's when she it's when she goes down to see them and they're. Is it to the, fix the, the, the smoke <laughs> is and he yeah, can yeah. turn it off easily? And he's turning it on right. to to, to shut you, her up girl. basically. Yeah. Right. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. by the way, my that is probably my favorite Brett moment when he's like, "She fucking comes down here." I don't fucking. And then he doesn't say he doesn't say a word, does he? <laughs> Is that it? No, hold on. Uh, we can't fix it out here anyway, and uh, we need to reroute a couple of these ducts. When you say you're ready. Dry dock, Tom. Dry dock. Tell me, dry dock. Look, we couldn't fix it out here anyway. We got to reroute all these ducts, and uh, in order to do that, we've got the dry dock. What else? Can I geek out on the um, uh, aspect ratio for a second? Get your uh, wax out. <laughs> oh, it was oh excuse me snyder's coming in what, what are you going to do about the aspect ratio then are you? Four by three. <laughs> you're going to turn it black and white man <laughs> no no it's it's perfect it was it was shot two three five and uh like that's very very wide and uh the, the sets were designed with these low ceilings so like when the actors were moving around they had to cheat the space sometimes because it wouldn't be natural but it would look great on camera but there'd be this compressed boxed in kind of feeling um and nobody I, I listen to a lot of these podcasts and nobody ever talks about aspect ratio so i want to geek out on it a bit and it really does alter things i mentioned it on the full metal jacket one the, the kubrick the kubrick aspect ratio fiasco just goes on and on but um th this one was particularly noticeable because it really gives a um a claustrophobic feeling in a lot of these these sets and also the way the set was designed there was only one way in so if you had to go into certain rooms of the set you, you had this claustrophobic feeling when when the actors were there too so they they actually felt like they were in a an enclosed space and that was mirrored with the photography and i, I really think it helps the the overall general claustrophobia of it all there's um there's one really great shot that uses that wide um uh ratio you were talking about in terms of um like it doesn't crowd the frame it just you see an uh uh several characters again it's it's that that scene that i keep coming back to which is the scene where ripley finally takes charge of the ship and you see yafik mm. around her there's a shot of her sitting back so she's kind of one of a, a, a row of people and yeah. she leans forward and she ends up dominating one entire half of the frame and it's like i just love when that's increasingly rare to see people change the frame just by yeah. changing the blocking very quickly yes but yeah. it help ever uh, you've, you've changed the feel of the of the scene and you've done it on a yeah. on a fixed camera shot which is uh, pretty extraordinary it's very clever mm -hmm. and nobody mentions that in terms of directing either like that's a key part knowing your lenses 
choosing an aspect ratio that that works for the the story and what you're doing within the frame and then like you said the blocking and and it's just it's knockout just one one thing on ridley scott i i, I got um and our good friend luke salway he got me onto robin hood for a um, bit of uh work experience back in 2010 that's when uh, uh R- russell crowe played his guitar for you yeah yeah uh and scott grimes sang man in the mirror um but really scott he he had this like tent there and i managed to see it once because i had to rig up something i can't remember but he had like we had like seven four or five cameras and he had all the screens there but he's very very hands-on and i heard like a story from the crew that when they did the final battle stuff by the sea they had like things in the sea itself i can't remember what they were like um world war ii landing craft things and when they were resetting, Ridley was in the water, resetting it physically. You know, he wants to go. He's, he's a very, like, and uh, it all made sense to me listening to the documentary about, um, like, he was doing, someone said he was doing, like, 30 to 40 setups a day on Alien because he was being pushed so hard by the producers. And maybe it's an advertising background thing as well. But, I mean, like, I really admired his kind of work ethic. And uh, he's very shouty as Ridley. You could hear him from his tent like, fuck it now, fuck this, fuck it. <laughs> and I quite enjoyed listening and hearing that. He had an apprenticeship, didn't he, all the way through. So he was a production designer for the BBC. And I think, you know, BBC television back then, uh, you know, he would have learned all... It's a, it's very similar to James Cameron. It's why they picked these directors, I guess, to make these, to helm these films. But he's someone who knows everyone's jobs certainly when it comes down to production design and camera so he you're not you're not gonna you're not gonna blag him uh and early in his career i think you know he, he he's very very aggressive as i said you know you just have to listen to the actors on alien uh including sigourney who say the you know, ridley scott he just he would tell you what he wanted and then he would leave you be and he'd be concentrating on the crew and getting the shot right and 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 that I believe that was why there was tension in Blade Runner with Harrison Ford because again he wasn't treating Harrison Ford like the star of the film. He's like the star of the film is me, mate. I will be creating images that people have never seen before, and you will be in them. That's how this will be. He's from our neck of the woods, like uh, me and Dev. Um, he's uh, he's Shields. like Hartlepool. Is it South oh, Shields? Oh, yeah. We. Well, I think it's around. Oh, maybe. South Shields Maybe. would be right uh, for where he was you born, be, I think. But sure it's not <laughs> <laughs> Me and Sam used to go and do a pub quiz, and we used to drive out like to there, and we would see uh, at night the the location that inspired the opening of Blade Runner with the the big wow. chimneys and everything yeah. like that. And, and if you look at it at mm. night, it's exactly the same. You can see he takes things from his life and includes it, e- even in you know science fiction and and horror and things like that. He's he somehow makes it personal. No, I agreed. And, and one of the other things as well is I looked at some of his old adverts. And for those of you who are a bit of an advert nerd like I am, the, the Hovis, the <laughs> yeah. Hovis bread one, you know, <laughs> this, that is what Ridley Scott does. He, it, and it's in this film as well. It's slightly just off kilter reality. It's real, but it's, it's elevated. So that Hovis advert is the quintessential depiction of what life on the cobbles would be. Yeah. If it wasn't, if it wasn't that you were by, about to bite into some lovely bread. <laughs> if, if you can, uh, try and find, uh, Boy with a Bicycle, which was his first 
short. It's like black and white, half half mm. hour long, I think. And Tony Scott, his brother, is the the boy on the bicycle. Oh, cool! And, yeah, uh, yeah. that inspired yeah. a lot of uh, some of the look of some of the adverts and stuff. But whenever he talks about the commercials, he always changes the number. He goes, "I made two thousand adverts." <laughs> and in the next interview, he'll say, "I've made three thousand adverts." And he'll, he'll talk about how he's, he's had every kind of setup you can possibly imagine. And my, one of my favorite quotes from him I always think about, um, is when you see a problem coming over the hill, you have to knock its head off before it gets to you. And that's the way he views filmmaking. He can predict what's going to go wrong and the possibilities of something going wrong. And then when it happens, if it happens, he knocks it out of the way and moves on. He's a very logical step by step filmmaker and that's how he makes so many films in such a short space of time for better or worse you know he's he's a very prolific director i remember certain criticism i think it was mark kermo years ago and i you might have come after the was the wine film with, with crow oh, a, yeah. a, a good year a good a year, good year which you. was not a good film well i mean his criticism <laughs> he said was that if you look at his back catalog like scott He's a great filmmaker, but not necessarily a good script editor within the filmmaking process. So a good script would equal an excellent film from Ridley Scott because it would be anchored by the script that you don't have to worry about and the characterization, maybe like what you said about Tom Skerritt. And visually, it's obviously going to look amazing because uh, it's Ridley Scott and Robin Hood and, and other little examples. And I felt like you'd have something to say about that galley yeah no i i yeah i totally agree i think um the, the reason why this and and even though blade runner is clearly dealing with some seriously hefty themes mm. the story is really simple uh and an alien is again mm. it's a nuts and bolts and it's the reason why i think this film was endured is because clearly he has fully elevated this material you know we've yeah. talked about the you know the structural perfection of the the script it's all there i i don't know who's credited as turning um ripley into a female but we'll talk about it when we talk about sigourney but that is a ge that is a genius move because that that again differentiates the film but even if that hadn't have happened this film would be one of those that you go if you want to watch a sci-fi film low budget as well let, let it be said, and you elevate the material, you watch this film, the lighting, the camera, the pacing, you know, this is a, it's a sci-fi horror and the horror elements are equally as strong because he is a visual storyteller with an impeccable, impeccable eye. I would argue that it, this is a, as height of powers. And I will now introduce Devlin to give the great quote from High Fidelity by Jack Black, because my question to you is, does Ridley Scott's sins, latter sins, taint his early work? Or is it better to burn out than to fade away? Um, yeah. <laughs> but, um, Have you seen The Martian, though, Gally? Yeah, I, I like it. I fucking it. love The Martian. It's great. Uh, with, is it as with, good as Alien? With some little caveats, some strange choices made in the kind of uh, support cast every now and then. I, what I was going to ask was, um, uh, as it does relate to this film as well, which is... Um, why is it that Ridley Scott is a director whose career is riddled with films where he had to go again on the edit? 
I, I put a caveat on that with that I watched both versions of this. I actually think the theatrical version of Alien is fucking tremendous and I don't... Well, he, he says that himself. He says the theatrical version is the director's cut. And, but but he, he was actually pressured and asked to add scenes in because they existed. Blade Runner, I can't comment on. I haven't done my research. Somebody would have done it, um, uh, if not him. But the Blade Runner, we're on like five versions seven all right just cut seven final 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 cut uh uh um you mentioned robin hood apparently robin hood was kind of a little bit he didn't he wasn't happy with the post on that kingdom of heaven being the most famous yeah not seen yeah yeah because the theatrical version was so kind of uh slated and it didn't seem like my kind of thing at all in the first place but from what Mm -hmm. i hear the director's cut essentially makes it a completely it is better yeah a far better film in his directing style that means that He's never quite done. I just think it's the, I think it comes down to the story. Uh, and I think Patrick's absolutely right. So I think of something like Black Hawk Down as a phenomenal work, a great war film, but the script is, again, it's really simple. It's a, it's a, it's an operation that goes horribly wrong. There are loads of little subplots going on with multiple characters, but they're very, very simple. And it's then, it then becomes a visceral experience because that's what Ridley Scott's going to give you. He's going to give you a film that, that will always look great. But, uh, you know, something like, here's a film that probably no one remembers, but do you remember the Russell Crowe, Leonardo DiCaprio film, Body of Lies? No, looks great. It, it's, it makes no impression whatsoever as a, as a movie because it, it's, it's dealing with kind of themes and, uh, kind of political and, and strategic corruption. And Ridley Scott's just not, I, I don't know whether he's not interested in it or it, like you say, he's so prolific that it'll just bang it out. And if it hits, it hits. And if it doesn't, don't worry, I've got another film in the background. You know, Gladiator is, for all its problems, a simple tale of a slave, uh, a person that gets stripped of his uh, authority, becomes a slave, and it's an uprising. Done. Uh, I think it's all about that set, that 7982 period is, um, you know his his heyday and uh he's such a great visualist probably the best like cinema visualist since kubrick like at, at that point and then you know th- those two films i don't want to say he got lucky but that ma- the material there and the way that the hunger he had for it at that time that energy that he put into those those two films makes them arguably the best like one two punch in film history i can't really think of any two films back to back that are better you've got like the mike nichols and quentin tarantino have had really good but certainly not that have had such a a huge and and completely like game-changing influence on a genre yeah yes absolutely yeah because i could argue that rob reiner despite him not being a popular choice had a serious run of of just absolute bangers it's almost like de niro isn't it like de niro has paid his dues and like he can make whatever he wants now he's still robert de niro and i feel the same way about um uh, ridley scott i don't uh, yeah i don't get excited by a ridley scott film anymore i I would no but like like i said the martian properly shows that he's still capable of like uh, with with a good script like giving pure entertainment and and like something looks amazing and it's really really solid great film Mm, no, agree. They're always a feast for the eyes. But speaking of a feast, shall we talk about the an icon emerging? So let's talk Sigourney. Wait, and sorry, feast. How did you get from feast to Sigourney Weaver? I believe she's a big fan of the uh, ice cream uh, <laughs> <or> feast. 
it's a tangential segue, Patrick. <laughs> it was shit. It's trivia. <laughs> IMDb trivia. It's, it's, it's in the IMDb trivia. I found it. It's, she's a big fan of the feast ice cream bar. Brilliant. She loves the hard, she loves the hard chocolate center. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> we have mentioned we've, uh, we spoke quite in depth about her on aliens and how like, incredible she is in that. But just to echo what I said before, the, the character and the way Weaver has really understood this character and played it. Like the, that scene with Ash when she's testing him and piss, still pissed off about the quarantine procedure. I mean, and there she develops as a more stronger physical presence to tackle everything head on. Fucking Weaver, man. Amazing. Hmm. And you brought him in. And you brought, oh, what a killer line. You said earlier there, Gally, about uh, whose idea it was for Ripley to be a woman. I think according to one of the documentaries, it's Alan Ladd. And yeah. it's uh, everyone, everyone's going to take credit for it though, aren't they? It was me. I did it. And Ridley Scott didn't find it to be unusual. He said he had a lot of powerful women in his life, particularly his mother, who he describes in one of those uh, Hollywood roundtables on YouTube. Do you ever watch them with all the directors are together? I love them. They did some Zoom ones, but it's not the same. Like, I love the one where, like, Quentin Tarantino is sat next to Ridley Scott and he's saying, I heard you're going to make an alien sequel. Yes, do that. You know, he's like, having a go with him about, he probably saw, um, uh, a good year one too many times, but he said that his mum is like a sergeant major and he credits her with his boundless energy and good genes. So this idea of the hero being a woman was just, he said, all right, good idea, fine. And he, and he ran with it with his later films too, like Thelma and Louise and G.I. Jane. I think I read something about him pushing for Lambert as well, though, to have like not just one female, he wanted another one with a discussion right. with the producers or something when they got to camera testing. Well, we mentioned that in the Aliens pod, that the uh, the original script was unisex. So yeah, you, you could choose who, who was male and who was female. What I like is that, uh, in contrast to the more popular depiction of Ripley and aliens with the, you know, the get away from her, you bitch, I've got a flamethrower, this kind of thing. Um, <laughs> there's a, uh, a, an archetype of the massive, uh, air quotes, capital letters, strong female character that is in itself a bit of a straitjacket that a lot of representation has to be put into. Which once, and it is a large part, James Cameron helped to define it really between, Aliens and Terminator 2, he's kind of set that archetype up. So now if you want to be, you know, a strong woman in a film, you have to be an ass kicker in a vest. And I, I like that, um, Ripley's portrayal in this is much like everyone else's of a, a professional working aboard a spaceship. Her single character trait that you should latch onto is that she follows, she follows procedure. And she's right, right? So she's right the whole time. And it's not a case of, um, you know, the, uh, is it the Cassandra effect where, you know, the, you don't, yes. yeah. don't listen, don't listen to, to the, the woman in the room. And the name is an Cassandra. <laughs> is that Cassandra from Only Fools and Horses? <laughs> yeah, I wish. It's um, um, no, <laughs> Wayne's World. You know, but that, but that's the, you know, that's the, that's the element of the film that you can attribute. And that's where all this feminist theory, uh, kind of emerges from. But she is a strong female character for the exact reasons that you say, Devlin, which is, She's a professional and she goes about her job uh, with diligence and integrity procedure. She looks after people. She's empathetic, but she also struggles. You know, she's not some badass kick-ass 
character who nothing phases her. In, in her moment when she's taking the leadership and Yafet Koto is challenging her, you can see how worked up she is. And she's like, shut up! Shut um, up, Mark, and listen to me. But it's not born out of I am right. It's I'm, I'm thinking I'm trying to do the best that I can do. And I love that. I love that about a character. The shuttle won't take four. Well, then why don't we draw straws? I'm not going in these drawers. I'm for killing that goddamn thing right now. Okay. Well, let's talk about killing it. We know it's using the air shafts. Will you listen to me, Parker? Shut up! Let's hear it. Let's hear it. It's using the air shafts. That's the only way. We'll move in pairs. We'll go step by step and cut off every bulkhead and every vent until we have it cornered, and then we'll blow it the fuck out into space. Is that acceptable to you? It means killing it. Obviously, it means killing it. But we have to stick together. And the difference between Lambert, at the end when Lambert's in the spotlight, she crumbles, like you said. And when she's on the escape pod, and the alien reveals itself, which is terrifying when that arm comes out. She doesn't panic like Lambert. And that's what, I think that's a very important thing to have the two female characters to, to have a contrast. But she reacts to it and you can almost see her thinking. She gets in the spacesuit. She's remembered what Dallas said about like uh, ejecting the alien out of the airlock and it's all unspoken things, but like her actions in that scene set her apart, I think, from that professionalism. She knows a job. That that's what leads nicely into aliens when she's like, where, where do you want it? On the um Yeah. Uh, yeah. that great line, baseball, but yeah. And <laughs> just I mean, like Weaver's control in her performance, letting us know when she's terrified, letting her know when she's about to lose it especially she does lose it with mother and when she thought she stopped the bomb because her, her way has been blocked but just never like stops she's fucking amazing one, one other thing to mention is uh, alan ladd asked secretaries and various women from the offices around when they were auditioning to uh, approve the sigourney weaver screen test so they actually went to women to get a female approval of this character whether whether she was believable or maybe something shallow shallow too like the way she looked but um that she was approved in in, in a very female-centric way i don't really know how but fortunate in in retrospect that in the 1970s in the studio system they literally had to find a fucking secretary to do that because there were no female in in any positions of authority but by the time you get around they said secretaries and various women from the offices. So I don't think they were in high. Uh, oh, you know, I, I guess by the time 86 rolls around, you have Galen Hurd in a position of genuine authority within the, the, the production. Let's do favorite scenes. Um, would you mind if I, would you mind if I start just in case, um, just in case someone nicks it? Um, my favorite scene is a, it's a pure horror scene. It's the, it's the Brett death. Um, I absolutely adore it. Because not only is it the, the way that it's a character who's massively vulnerable, who I've come to, you know, really have an affinity for, you know, what the fuck is she going to come down here and tell me what to do? Um, you know, uh, but I, I love Brett and it, it's the, it's the slow, it's the slow death, isn't it? It's the death by a thousand cuts and it's the extra 
it's the extra beat that that Scott puts into the the film, and and I'm going to also credit Terry Rawlins on the edit. Just when you think you're about to burst, and you're like, he's going to get it. You know, he's going to get it. He takes his cap off and he decides to let the the wherever that water's coming from um, drain on him. And we have the chains. Then he sees Jonesy. There's a couple of jump scares. Then you think he's going to get killed, and you keep thinking it's going to come. And if you're looking carefully, you can see the alien hanging on one shot and then it comes down and he's a goner. And I just adore that entire sequence is just masterful. I wouldn't change a thing. And we have our best actor award for Jonesy the Cat when uh, when he hisses at the alien. Love it. <laughs> well, I, I agree. Mine is the same as yours. I've got an honorable mention for the chest burster, but because I've seen it so often, you know, um, it, it's kind of been relegated a little bit. Um, and my other one is the landing, honorable mention to the, the initial landing on the planet. Um, the smoky atmosphere feels dangerous and hostile. And it's like, uh, you know, that the, the monitors look like un- unknown pleasures by Joy Division. Did you see that? Um, very strange. And, uh, it, it's, you know, a, a really great, landing scene and uh, there was something I was going to say earlier about how Ridley Scott was shaking all of their chairs it's like uh, um, and they were all looking at him you know in a peculiar way as if to say like do you, is this really going to work and we're on this massive film and you're sh- physically shaking the chairs but when you see it in the movie it's it's perfect so yeah my favorite is is the same as yours Gally Brett's death but it's just this artful very the the balletic way the alien comes down and moves it's paced really well um i think anyone who wants to study horror and how those kinds of scenes work you can break that one apart and and really uh and see how the editing is effective in a suspenseful way um i'm I'm a bit puzzled between the theatrical and the director's cut because there's one shot of the alien don't like it chains no i don't like it not in the you don't you well i i do like that but I I don't like the the idea that the pacing of that scene has been altered because I thought it was perfect the way it was. But when I found out that that shot of the alien in the chains has been was not there originally, I I kind of like it. So I'd have to see them both back to back. But I'm I'm usually someone who prefers the uh, the the unaltered original. So I'll I'll probably side with you on the on the theatrical cut there. What about you, Devs? Uh, I would say favorite scene, uh, would be, um, Kane in the egg room. Um, that was just, uh, just so kind of vast and, uh, uh, and, and bewildering. And, and it's, 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 uh, you can then, when you, when you read that they're all influenced by these kind of like, re underground french comics and french illustrators and it's like yeah that's 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 clearly where this is coming from and and also that you know that there were people working with alejandro jodorowsky who was a genuine weirdo so you can you can see that like something so unusual being placed into a a a film like this it just uh and it's just purely uh horrifying being that it's the it's the shot of the uh the translucent egg with the with the wriggling inside it it's just that's enough like that's it's just pure yeah it's so disgusting my my favorite shot in the film is is just at the at the end after the face hugger yeah comes out and there's that great sequence of edits that we, we should praise um 
at the editing a bit more, but uh, the way that's done. And then it cuts out to the silence of yes. the, the derelict craft with this kind of, and then there's a howling yeah. wind over it. And then it's like Ridley Scott saying, like, just take a minute. Let, just I've just shown you this thing. Just take it all in before we move on. And that's that's my favourite shot that yeah, cut out. It's a, a fascinating shot in that sequence as well, Devlin, with the eggs. It must be shot upside down when there's like perspiration coming up. Yes, yeah, which yeah. Which is yeah. so, so strange. It and is reversed, isn't it? It's dripping like, upwards. We could have that conversation again, Matt, like, where's the light coming from? Yeah. yeah the... Doesn't matter. Same it doesn't matter. Well, there's a light on the helmet, but it does, yeah. it's not it's just so interesting, though. I don't care. Like, within the, it, within the shot. I, I see it as a cultivation harvesting tool that there's been left behind from some technologies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, Which I, is your Patrick. Just after your scene, I've always been gripped to fuck by the following sequence. It, it's more, I'm kind of blending three scenes here. Ripley not letting them in from the quarantine thing and the argument there. I'm like, I, I'm edge of my seat stuff. This is like really where I get into the film. And I think when I was a kid, um, this is where I was like, oh, what is going on? Like, wow, 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 wow. That face I could coming out, the horror of it. But not letting them in the quarantine is like blowing my mind. Like, what well, the fuck's going to happen? And getting into the med bay and trying to tackle it and discover it and understand it and the acid blood and the image. When they crack that helmet open and we see it and there, there's a little gasp there moment. I'm, I think it's just stunning. Uh, I like that they're watching from the window, uh, you know, why don't you freeze him? Ripley trying to figure it out and she can see she, she's bubbling because she's pissed off at this. You start to distrust Ash. I think a lot of the characters have a lot of everything going on there. We've had Kane anyway. I know he's sidelined at the minute, but when it strangles him as well, when they try and take it off, all this just creeps me out. And I'm so like can't look away because I'm, I'm completely enwrapped by that scene. I think it's extraordinary. I think the, you know, one of those examples of lack of music and it's just watch and see and observe and learn and, uh, driving the plot forward. Like Gally said, that, that scene for me will always stand out as well as the, the chest burster, which is the big iconic scene that I had a lot of fun trying to do myself <laughs> at one point. Um, that's my scene. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. It's the, te- it's the textures in that, um, when John Hurt's lying, you know, there's a little bit of water in his neck, in his neck cavity. And yeah. you, you get, yeah, you see it. And, and one of the things that, you know, I'm not sandwiches for later aliens series films is that they sort of, they nail the egg. They nail the face hugger. They might not maybe nail the man in the suit in this one, but the way it's shot, they, they nail it. But somehow the egg and the, um, the life cycle, so to speak, and some of those gory organic textures get worse as the films go on which shouldn't happen when this was made mm. in 1979 but it's a it's a, it's one of those things you watch this and you know we talked about um you know the some of the some of the technological limitations with uh with the puppets uh with the ash kind of hands and also um the the computer systems but this film if it was released next week uh honestly i don't think it's aged right. at all like it looks it looks so contemporary like it, forget it, about the, the only thing that's probably aged like I say, the computer the systems explosion at the end but i mean that's the thing yeah, yeah. Time, you know what else can they do but i'm but i'm not about like the look 
Like I don't. There's, there are films that come out that came out last year that don't look anywhere near as good as this. And you just have to go like, how is that possible that this film with old stock, old cameras, old lenses looks so much better? And it comes down to craft, technicians, and time, time, effort. I think like just the the way they make films now. We talked about it oddly a couple of weeks, uh, a few weeks back when we were talking about The Rock. When I was saying that one of the things that I really loved about it was just the texture that they got into the the specificities of the lighting, of the way that there was uh, lighting on people's skin, lighting on the backgrounds, lighting on set, lighting on props, because everything now has to be shot for so much post production. Uh, uh, digital coloring, everything can be used. To, I mean, I didn't watch it because I don't give a shit, but apparently the Justice League looks completely different in two, in two different versions because there's so much now post-production that happens where basically you are choosing the color palette after the fact. Whereas right here, it's like they were slathering KY jelly on everyone because that's what you had to do. Also pointing out the, the, the limitations there of like what you have, what you now have to do, even though there's so much more um, technology available now, the technology has to be used in different ways. They're the, from the top down, they're not going to let you sit there and put the little dab of water in the neck because what if it doesn't match the next thing and what if it doesn't match the lighting? One example of that, Kelly, the physicality of it. Like from modern day cinema now, you, you watch sci-fi and space films and the visors on the helmets are always CG now. Uh, like digitally put in and there's a shot of Kane <clears throat> excuse me of Kane going through with the, the smoke and the reflections I, I, you can't replicate that for me or you can but it's going to take loads you of can't time achieve that and thing. time yeah. Now, yeah time now is so much money that that you probably can't go back to this type of filmmaking but you you probably can it's in the indie scenes and they don't get as much exposure as this film got because when this hit theaters you know people went Holy shit, you need to go watch this film. And I, I'd love to, you know, transport myself back to this 1979 and seeing this for the first time without all the knowledge of the alien mythos and it being so demystified. It would have been a hell of an experience. But there are me walking into my summary. Go for it. So, um, we will, we'll, we'll go for our final thoughts and I've decided that I will go first. Um, yeah, this is, you know, I said it right at the, the start of the show. This is a bona fide cinematic classic. Um, you don't need to be a, a fan of the, of the genres to not appreciate the, the craft, the time, the precision. You know, I've said about Ridley Scott's impeccable eye, but everybody is on top form here, aren't they? You know, every single person has come to play for what is a bit of a goofy monster movie. And that is the bit that just blows my mind every time. You know, this is, you know, this caused shockwaves in the genre and is now the, you know, year one. If you're going to do any type of monster, alien, sci-fi crew, you know, I think about something like Sunshine, which I absolutely adore, which, you know, the influence of Alien is just uh, bleeding all over the place in that film. And why wouldn't you? This will stand the test of time and long after we are all gone. Don't know why I've gone morbid. Um, you know, this film will still be, will be revered. So, um, yeah, it's an absolute stonewall high recommend. You know, please, if you've never seen the first alien, do watch it. All I will say is if anyone's coming to it new, do forgive the limitations of the time. It is a man in a suit and there are a couple of frames, as Matt said, which, are a little bit obvious. The ash head is goofy as fuck, and they really should have just 
made a made us just cut to Ripley's reaction and then cut back to Ash. But but apart from that, this is seamless perfection. So yeah, I don't have anything else to say other than this is how it's done. Um, yeah, absolutely love it. What about you, Devs? Um, keeping it very brief, uh, we'll say that because I was less familiar with the film than you guys, uh, as I think I will be throughout the entire of this, uh, alien rewatch series. Um, they're all films that I've seen, uh, knew well enough, but hadn't really seen in a while. Um, I said on the Aliens rewatch that I thought that that was an extraordinary film and that I was very happy to have got to watch it again. Uh, I think even more so on this one. Um, this one, uh, uh, which I didn't know as well has shot very high up the top of like my, uh, my list of, of real favorites. Like I'm, I'm totally in on this one. 100%. I watched it twice in very quick succession and, uh, and would watch it again in a, in a heartbeat, which is always a, a, a real kind of, that's, that's quite something to know that you just want to get straight back into something because you loved it that much. And I don't think that it would diminish either. I don't think that the, the sense of tension would diminish at all. I don't think the admiration for the, it's not just the look of it. Sometimes there are, we keep saying that Ridley Scott has a very good eye. And, but I think with, with everything else that we've said, it was, it was so apparent. There's so much more to it. And that it's just such an alchemical mix, and it's fascinating to go back and watch the uh, the Beast Within documentary to see the the, the generation of the project. Um, uh, Dan O'Bannon seems like a genuine uh, weirdo in a really good way. I think he's extremely creative. I like a lot of the stuff he's done. I feel like maybe I should have waxed his car a little, but maybe I'll hold off for something like Return of the Living Dead, or uh, or even one of these days we're going to watch Life Force. Uh, but, uh, the, his ideas being kind of bounced off and maybe tempered by the, by the remaining writing team, Walter Hill and, uh, is it David Geiler? David Geiler is the. David Geiler, yeah, yeah, who's very, very candid. Yes. And Walter Hill, and is it Walter Hill? No, it's David Geiler who's the extremely he, candid he said, one in the uh, quadrilogy making of. So, you know, the, the, the alchemy of these people coming together to create something and, and seeing the tension that went on behind the scenes and, uh the fact that um what you end up with is just kind of yeah you can just you can feel the hands plural at work in this one but you don't feel the weight of that in the film because the film itself just just flies by it's uh it's it's fantastic uh so i'll hand over to matt i think there's an argument it's scott's best film uh i think blade runner might top it technically but i know which film i'd rather watch again and again um i think one thing the first does better than aliens maybe is to tap into this common shared consciousness nightmare um it really locks into an attack on our senses and it's all from giga really that uh i think it's the necro i'll get it wrong but it's the necronomicon uh four or five um, I was going to talk about in Critics Corner, we, we cut Critics Corners mm-hmm. too, we're running a bit long today, but um, Ebert talks about a, a bug-eyed monster and uh, I was going to slag him off because <laughs> the alien actually has no eyes. So um, I, I wonder if he'd even seen the film. But uh, I think that Giga has tapped into a Freudian, Jungian thing and beyond the psychosexual, biomechanical 
merging of our fears and this unknown. And I think that's one of the reasons the alien is great and the, the film itself will, will have a long life. Um, I think it's going to be really hard to top that creature. I think it's the greatest, um, monster in cinema, really. Um, you'd have to look at like the universal monsters and really go back to the beginning to find anything that's, that's as good, really. Um, I love that it's a big production that's grounded by a logical, practical approach. Like when we talked about the egg, like the interior of the egg is awful from a butcher's. And the interior of the face hugger when Ash is dissecting it is all, you know, liver and things like that. So yeah, it, it's just beautifully done. You know, it's, um, I, I don't think it's a perfect film. Like some people say it is, it's, but it's the perfect alien film. It does what the franchise does in its purest form. If I had to pick, I would choose aliens over alien. Um, but listen into that pod to find out why. Uh, I, I do think this, it's appropriate that this is called Alien and not Star Beast or something like that because it really is the definitive alien film. It's not tainted by CGI. Ripley is still a grounded, believable, likable character. Uh, I like that it's not over-explained. Uh, the space jockey is still a conundrum rather than something that, that we know everything about now. So there's a question of wh whether... Prometheus is, you know, retroactively tarnished alien a little bit. Personally, it doesn't really bother me too much. I just detach it. Um, alien kind of, uh, it, it's this abstract horror and it's done really brilliantly. Um, I'm constantly amazed how Hollywood and filmmakers ignore the lessons of the past from films like Jaws and Alien, where you hide the creature, you only show what you need to show and keep it in the audience's imagination because it's always scarier that way. And CGI has, has ruined that because just because you can show it doesn't mean you should. An alien is a, a really solid lesson there. Uh, the film spawned so much that I love from the sequels, brilliant and otherwise, which we'll get into later. Um, I love the documentaries. I revisit them often. Um, I've put a big playlist in the show notes. Uh, it's over a hundred videos long. So dip into that if you're a fan. Um, I, I often think of John Hurt's line. Uh, I remember a horrible dream about smothering because that is alien to me. And I think it's done here in a very pure, undiluted way. It's a classic of cinema, not just horror or science fiction, but cinema. And I, I love it. So uh, on to Alien 3 next, I, I suppose. What about you, Patrick? I think it's very clear um, that we're all pretty much on the same page. Uh, I often, as I'm sure you guys do, being film fans, get asked, what's your favourite film? And, you know, like it's an expansive question, but I always try and have five because I do have five. And this is in my top five. This, for me, is a clear pure masterpiece the fire was lit when i was young as i said galley and i i return to this film i don't know twice a year something i watch it a lot because i get in the mood for it because every time i watch it i have that feeling and that sense of watching it for the first time and that memory of its first impression on me which was an interesting one that i was i remember being a little bit bored 
and watching it with my parents for the first 10 minutes and maybe the atmospheric tone of it. You know, I was quite young, 12, 13, and not really buying into that. And then the film just turned this corner for me when they get onto LV2, uh, LV426 and the egg and the, the face hugger. And that's been my life now <laughs> that this film is really quite important to me. Um, it's my fa- like favorite ever horror. I think it's one of the best ever horrors. You look at modern horror films now uh, and people like love them and certainly we'll, we'll discuss paranormal activity when we get to it. But if I'm ever going to recommend anything to say, shit your pants, you've got to watch Alien. I still, I still think it achieves that quite a lot for me. Um, it's, Matt, you said it's not a perfect film. T- to me, it is. Um, I, it's flawless to me. Uh, it's just a wonderful film. And the more I grow up, I feel like I learn more about the film. The more experience I get in my career and learning that I can watch the film and have something else added because I can appreciate it even more because from a studio film and Hollywood film perspective, from the production, um, you, you, I always have a little conversation with my friends, David, especially when best, best film at the Oscars. And I'd like a best production kind of award, you know, from an organizational point of view and everything. You've all said it. Everyone's come to the party here. It's a, it's a masterpiece from all departments. Sound, editing, anything you want to discuss, like uh, the costumes. We, I spoke about Parker being iconic to me. I love the head, the headband. That's it. Like truckers in space. It sells me everything about Parker. The, the design, the Nostromo logo. I adore, like I adore the design of that. I can't, I have it. I've drawn it. I put it on a hat. Do you think last exit to nowhere will send us some free t-shirts if we play? I fucking hope so because the design and the Nostromo <laughs> and the logo and everything, even the Wayland, uh, cool, like logo, I mm. just think's brilliant. And the, the look of this film, Wrigley's direction, the editing, <laughs> the music, I, I can't, I, how long have I got here? You're going to have to cut me short. I'm sorry. I, I, the, I'm running out of wax. I've eaten my sandwiches. <laughs> Plate of greens has disappeared. It's burst out of your chest. We get it. You adore this one. <laughs> yeah, I do. I, and I, I just think it's a masterpiece. Right. Where you can find the film. Uh, so currently if you have Sky, uh, you know, you've been, you've, you've tapped into that horrible corporation <laughs> or now, or TV. now TV. Um, they, they've currently got all of the alien films, which is quite good for us. If you're in America, uh, you can see it on direct TV, HBO Max, uh, or you can rent it and buy it in the usual places, Amazon, Fandango, Apple. But, but we should recommend the Quadrology DVD box set because it's... Yeah. Is it Quadrology or is it Quadrilogy? Quadrilogy? What am I doing? Quadrilogies. Are you correcting me? I am, yeah. yeah. Makes a change. Uh, I believe currently, if you uh, sniff around, you can find uh, the the first four films Blu-ray box set I've just seen is going for around twelve pounds new. Jesus, right? Well, this retail. is and then, and and the, this quadrilogy as well is just jam packed with extras. So if you are a fan of this universe, get on it. And also, that means you get to follow us as we go through. Well, at least the first four films. Um, so there you go. Cool. Watch the trailer, everyone, as well. If you enjoy the the show and what we do, then please like, subscribe, and 
just pen us a, a wee little review on uh, on Apple Podcast. I don't know why it's always Apple, but that way more people uh, can come to the show. Um, so we'd really appreciate that. Namely, if you are going to review it, though, five stars is better than one. Just make sure that you're... And a positive review is better than a negative review. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> um, but yeah, because we do this all for free. It's all... There's no, there's no, there's no hidden, hidden agendas. None of us are androids. I'll not get, I'll not attack you with a magazine. That's for sure. Um, but anyway, um, so team, we will say our goodbyes. The next film we will review in the Alien series is Alien Three. Stand by for that one. I don't know when that will be. We've also got the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, which is Patrick's pick, which is why he doesn't have one now for a while, which is good for us because he wants to clearly do a musical. Um, so we will, uh, we will say our goodbyes. Shall we, uh, shall we gang? Yeah. Excellent. Well, uh, after I've been talking about all this free stuff, can we, can we go over this bonus situation again? It's Gally in Glasgow signing out. Uh, back to the old freezerinos. It's Devlin in London. And this is Patrick from London. Less survivor than Astrona signing off. That crap's going to eat through the hole. That thing's going to eat through the goddamn hole. It's Matt in South Korea. Oh, thank you very much, everyone. And thanks for listening. And we'll catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast. Yeah.